For our scripture reading this morning, we have two passages from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible beside you, you've got your app on your phone, go to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 5 again. Chapter 5, and I'm going to start here in verse 31, and then we're going to go over to Matthew 19 right after. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And we're going to head over to Matthew 19. Starting in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is God's word. You may be seated. Oh, what a great morning. Uh, this has been, Corey, you blessed us, brother. We are glad to have you. And Angela, his wife is Angela. Uh, you will get a chance to meet her as well. But uh, Angela, we want you to know you are most welcome uh, here in the central community as well. And you guys have both been prayed for, man, was it been two years? Three, I don't even know. You've been prayed for for a long time. Uh, so we're grateful to have you uh, as a family and look forward to when they finally arrive here in January. And uh, Corey will officially begin then. All right, well, this morning we are continuing on with our Ask Anything series. You asked questions, you voted on questions, and here's the next one. Way to give me the easy ones, people. Here we are. Uh, When would divorce be permissible, and when is remarriage acceptable? Whew, all right. Uh, As you can guess, this is not an easy subject to speak on, and the reason is obvious. It's because this issue can just really get right down to the core of our emotions, the core of raw experiences and difficult experiences. And Divorce has affected so many people in different ways. Maybe you grew up in a home of the, where your parents were divorced. Maybe as a child you've had to work through those things, and now as an adult, uh, maybe you yourself have been divorced. Maybe you've been remarried. Maybe that's happened even a few times. Or maybe you are right now even in a troubled marriage, and you're pondering divorce. When it comes to this subject, I think it is absolutely critical that we speak with two voices 
at the same time in one message. And so I aim this morning to speak with two voices because I think both have to be heard. And if we miss one of them, we miss almost everything. Just like with a few weeks ago when I had the conversation with Paul, we talked about being full of grace and truth. This is the same. So I want to speak this morning with a priestly voice and a prophetic voice. And what I mean by that is the priests in the Old Testament were responsible for numerous things. But one of the things the priests were responsible for was to show compassion and to strengthen the weak. Priests were to come alongside and care for people. And by God's grace, I want to speak into the lives of each of you who have been affected by divorce and however that may have been in your life. I want to speak with a priestly voice of compassion and Lord willing to aid you in the difficulties that you faced. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke for God, and prophets would often try to call the people back to God's standard. The people would stray away from God. They would disregard God's rules. There'd be societal breakdown, marriage breakdown, all these things. And so then the, the prophets would speak and say, this is what God has said. We need to come back to the ideal that God has given us. We must follow his ways, for his ways are good. So they would speak, and the prophets would call people back to the truth And so this morning, I also think it's very important that in our generation, in a day and age when, of course, marriage is not what it used to be at all, we must uphold God's standard and God's design for our good and for His glory. It's the same God in the Bible who in Malachi 2 verse 16 says, I hate divorce. I can't stand what it does and destroys people's lives. That same God also says to us, come to me all you who are weary, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, Lord willing, I'll speak with both of those voices, but I really hope this morning there is something in this message for everyone. Even if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not even married, I I actually think this message could be one of the most important messages if you are single, if you want to get married, no matter your age. I was firstly thinking, okay, young single people, we gotta talk to them. No, no, middle-aged single people, if you want to get remarried or married for the first time, older people, maybe your spouse has passed away and you are considering another marriage, applies to you. Of course, it applies to everyone who is married, everyone who has been divorced, no matter how many times. And listen, we all know people, every one of us knows people who have been affected by divorce. So let's pay attention to God's Word this morning and see what we can learn that it would be for our good, we'd be able to help others, and we live lives that are glorifying to God. So this morning what I want to do is dig right into Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. And the passages that we're going to look at, Jesus really talks about three things. But before I get to Jesus' three things, let's just kind of lay a little bit of groundwork, make sure we're all on the same page, none of this is going to be controversial. Let's talk first of, all, first of all about four views that people have on marriage and divorce. The first view is what I'll just call the Canadian societal view. I think you would understand this, there might be some exceptions in here, but generally speaking, in Canadian society, divorce and remarriage are allowed anytime, for anybody, for anything. Then there are really three distinct Christian views. Here's view number one, very conservative view, no divorce at all for anybody, not for any reason, or under any circumstance. I will not be giving that view this morning, but that is a view that some people do hold. Christian view number two. Divorce is, under certain circumstances, is permissible, but no remarriage is allowed. And then Christian view number three. Both divorce and remarriage are possible, 
but only under certain circumstances. That's our modern age. I don't think any of that's controversial. Modern views. Back in Jesus' day, in the first century, there were also competing views, really two competing views. This is very important to understand as background before we look at Jesus' teaching, because Jesus is speaking into this worldview, to these people, and to their two competing views. So here's the first one. It came from uh, a rabbi, Shammai. So a rabbi is a teacher, a Jewish teacher. And his view is what you might call the conservative or the fundamentalist viewpoint. He said that divorce was only possible for adultery and divorce must take place, must take place when adultery occurs. More the conservative, you might say fundamentalist position. But that was not the dominant position at all. Much like in our day, most people took a second view following a rabbi named Hillel. Rabbi Hillel said that divorce is permitted for even the slightest reason. And the vast part of the Jewish culture, and especially the scribes and Pharisees, followed this more lenient view. So those are some of the views of Jesus' day. And in the second view, there was actually a collection of uh, rabbis, collect, uh, collected wisdom, collected teachings. It was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah listed all the reasons why a husband could divorce his wife. And it's a long list. I actually had to cut out a bunch. I was just going to read it for your humor's sake, uh, but my sermon was getting too long, so I cut it down. So here's just four. You could divorce your wife for serious reasons, like not being able to have children. Terrible reason, but you could. And then there was just ridiculous things, like if your wife was missing some teeth, if her hair was thinning, and yes, even if she burned the supper, a man could divorce his wife. Very lenient and lax views on divorce. So, just like our secular society, first century people believed divorce could basically happen for any reason, particularly if you were a man, and it seems that the disciples also held to this very lax, this very lenient view on divorce. Now, with that kind of as a background, now we're ready to jump into Jesus' teaching on what he is going to say about this. But here's the thing to say right up front. Jesus will not, and I'm gonna follow his lead, will not answer the two questions that you asked about divorce and remarriage without first talking about the permanence of marriage. So I'm gonna follow his lead. Jesus wants to stress the permanence of marriage, and then yes, he'll deal with questions about divorce and remarriage, and so I think it's pretty good to follow Jesus as a preacher. Can't go wrong. So here's the first thing. Oh, we already got it. All right, first point. We must take the permanence of marriage seriously because God created it to be an exclusive relationship that lasts a lifetime. First, Jesus wants to say we've got to take this marriage, the permanence of it, very seriously. This is his main point, and his first reason is because God created it to be an exclusive relationship that lasts a lifetime. So look with me at Matthew chapter 19. We're going to kind of skip back and forth a little bit. Chapter 19 and verse 3, and let's just set the story here. We read that the Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They want to test Jesus. So what the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, we want to know where you stand. Are you a fundamentalist conservative like Rabbi Shammai, or are you more of a progressive liberal like Rob, Rabbi Hillel? Which one are you, Jesus? Where do you stand? Give us your viewpoint. Well, Jesus continues. He answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, quoting Genesis 2 now, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now here's what I want you to see right away. Jesus does not directly answer their question. What was their question about? Divorce. Does Jesus answer it right away? No. Jesus basically says, I refuse to have a conversation about the grounds of divorce unless we're first going to have a conversation about what marriage actually is. And the reason why Jesus is doing this is very important because you have to be able to define what marriage is. How you define marriage is going to determine your views on divorce. And so Jesus takes them right back to the beginning, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where we read that God created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and joined them in marriage. Right there, we see at least two things we learned about marriage. First of all, we learn that God created marriage to be an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. So God gave Adam a woman. He did not create two or three women for Adam to marry. He did not create two Adams. He did not create two Eves. Marriage is to be an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. In quoting Genesis, Jesus is also reminding the Pharisees that God created marriage to be a permanent relationship. So as we read, hold fast to his wife. Uh, Some of you uh, remember the old King James. Do you know the word in the old King James? Shall leave his father and mother and he shall... Yeah, we got some good King Jamesers way back in the day. Cleave to his wife. That's right. Half my Bible memory is in the King James, half it's in the NIV, and then the last 20%, I know that's more than 100, is in all kinds of different versions. It gets messed up. But that's all my old Bible memory. Shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cleave to his wife. Very important here. This is where we got to just pause and all of us reflect. And here's the question we got to ask ourselves. What is marriage? What makes a marriage a marriage? You might kind of think, well, it's kind of an obvious question. Well, try to answer it. Is it so easy to answer? What makes a marriage a marriage? How you define this will define your views on divorce. So we got to get that straight. You just go around asking people in society, what is the definition of marriage? What is a marriage? People might say, well, it's when two people love one another and they, and they commit to each other. They, they show each other affection. That's a marriage. But your dog shows undying affection to you, and quite frankly, better than your spouse a lot of the time. Quickly forgives, quickly moves back to, I love you so much. Well, maybe you kind of think sexual union, that's what makes a marriage a marriage, but that can't be it. Unmarried people have sex all the time. And if you think that you get married because one of the great purposes of marriage is to have a great sex life, if that's what you're going to think marriage is all based on and that's what makes a marriage, what's going to happen when maybe the sex is not exactly like you want it to be? Is the marriage now over because marriage is about sex? Same thing with love and affection. Is the marriage over because you've lost your feelings now and and there's not so much affection as there used to be? You see, your definition of marriage is going to define your views on divorce. If you think that it's just about love, affection, or a great sex life or something, as soon as those change, you're going to say, I'm out of here. But that's why Jesus is pressing us to go back Love, affection, and a a good sexual relationship are obviously important and critical parts of a healthy marriage, but they're not actually the definition of what makes a marriage a marriage. That word cleave, hold fast, it means to make a covenant. 
to make a covenant. A covenant is when you make a public vow to be faithful and committed to another person. It's the public vow that makes people married. So as a pastor, I have had the great privilege of officiating far more weddings than I can possibly count. Been part of many, many premarital counselings. It's been one of the great joys of my ministry. But I always get a little concerned when I'm sitting with a young couple and they say, we'd like to write our own vows for our wedding. And I say, okay, I know that's really popular nowadays and I I can work with that. That's okay. There's no way you have to do it in some ways. But I always get a little concerned because they inevitably say things like, I love you. I want you. You complete me. Language like that. And those are very nice things to say, but they are not vows. A vow is a promise about the future. On your wedding day, you are not there to pronounce your present love for your spouse, though that's a great idea and you should do it. On your wedding day, you are there to vow your future love to your spouse. You are making a promise about future love. So saying I love you is not a covenant. A covenant is saying I promise to take you as my husband or wife for better or for worse. The old language, right? For richer or poorer, whether we can afford to buy a lake house or we can't even afford to pay the rent. I'm promising, I'm vowing to be with you for in sickness or health. Whether one of us gets cancer or an autoimmune disease, I promise that I will love you for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health from this day forward until what? Death do us part. So do you see then why Jesus refuses to talk about divorce until he has first talked about marriage? He's doing this because he's saying, look, your views on divorce are going to be dictated by your views on marriage. You've got to get marriage straight first. And if you view marriage like so many in our culture do as more, and let's use this phrase, as an exchange of services, you know what I mean by that? An exchange of services means I will give you love if you give me love. I will give you affection if you give me affection. I will give you a great sex life if you give me a great sex life. And in our culture, this is how it's often viewed, and then, well, as soon as the exchange is not going properly, and some of that doesn't happen anymore, well, then now the relationship is done. But you know what that actually is? That's a consumer relationship. It's a consumer relationship. It's an exchange of services. But that is not what marriage is according to God. According to God, it's an utter relational commitment of your whole being that you're going to pour into this other person. This is what you're going to give to them. So if you see that God created marriage to be a covenant commitment between a man and a woman, then now your views on divorce are going to be very different. Now before we move on to actually the second point, Let me just say a word to those of you who are single and you would like to be married. Maybe you're young and maybe one day you'd like to be married. Maybe you're middle-aged and you'd like to get married, maybe again or for the first time. Let's just talk about that for just a moment. Again, as a pastor, I have the great privilege of being part of so many weddings. But I must tell you, one of the number one pastoral issues that I have dealt with, and I know other pastors as well would agree with me, is the difficulties of discipling people who say they are Christians, but then they say, I want to marry a non-Christian. 
And it gets, it's very difficult. It's almost always a lose situation because feelings are very powerful. And so then people will say, well, why? God, that God's command on that is not good. God, I know God commands me to marry another Christian, but I just, I love this person. I want you to hear this single people as a word for your good. That God's command for you to marry another believer is not to ruin your life. It's to increase your joy. Because listen, if you say you're a Christian, then is not Jesus the center and the core of everything that you are? Is not living for God, you want God to be glorified in every part of your life. You don't want to just compartmentalize them to this little part or Sunday or something like that. If you love Christ, if you are truly a believer, you will say, I want Jesus to rule in every part of my life. I delight in him and I want to serve him from the core of my being, encompassing everything that I am and everything that I do. That's what a Christian says. But what will you do if you want to marry someone who yawns at the idea of worship? Who scoffs at the particular ideas of giving money, for instance, to missions or to church organizations or whatever? Or maybe, and I've seen this and this is tragic, who mocks you to your face for your faith in Jesus Christ, but you're married and you need to be faithful to your spouse. It is not easy. I am asking you as single people to really consider before your feelings take over. Decide now. Will you follow Christ and His good commands for you? You've got to settle it now before the feelings come. I'm telling you as a pastor, once the feelings come, it's pretty hard to take the train off the track. So single people, listen to God's word. It's for your good and for his glory. So that's Jesus' first point. We must take the permanence of marriage seriously because this is how our creator designed it. Second, we must take the permanence of marriage seriously because even the grounds for divorce are a concession, not a command. That's a key point. We're now going to get into divorce. The grounds for divorce that Jesus gives are a concession, not a command. So again, look at chapter 19. Uh, now we're in verse 7 where Jesus says these words. He says, they said to him, these are the Pharisees, why then, Jesus, if you're holding up this high view of marriage, why, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So after Jesus has given his teaching on marriage, the Pharisees bring up an objection. They're saying, Jesus, I mean, if your views are so right, then why did Moses command us, and it's Deuteronomy chapter 24 that they're referring to, why would Moses command us to give a certificate to our wives when we divorce them? So the Pharisees were teaching that, the peop that it was perfectly fine to God if you got divorced, the key thing was you just had to make sure you gave a certificate. That's the key thing. And they said Moses commanded it, and so we're just following Moses. And who can disagree with Moses? It's Moses, right? Well, Jesus is going to argue that they're twisting his words. They're twisting his words and not viewing what Deuteronomy 24 actually says. Jesus says, no, this is a misreading of Deuteronomy 24, and your views, Pharisees, which you're teaching everybody, are not only ruining families, they're destroying the societal order. So what does Deuteronomy 24 actually teach? Well, let's look at it. Here's what it says. 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. Now notice, don't jump to conclusions. I know where you're going in your mind. Don't jump to conclusions too quickly. Notice, first of all, that this begins with conditional clauses. There's two if statements. If this scenario happens, and then if she goes and marries another. It's a, it's a potential scenario that's going to happen. So God is not making a command, I'm asking you to do this. That's not what's happening. He's saying, if a situation like this should arise, then this is how you should handle it. And so what the rabbis were debating was this key word right here. What does it mean? to find an indecency. So, as we saw, Rabbi Hillel basically said, well, indecency, she burns the dinner, that's an indecency, you can send her away. So the rabbis were having this big debate about that, but of course, the poor woman who's in this situation, this hypothetical situation, she's getting divorced by one husband, by a second husband, but the entire point of this law was for those husbands to try to limit them to say, look guys, if you're gonna divorce her, you can't ever take her back again, and you gotta make sure you write this certificate of divorce. Now, here's the burning questions you're all asking, because I know as modern people, you're like, this is really chauvinist. This is sexist. This is what it is. No, you're misreading it entirely. Why did God give this law? Two reasons. First, God gave this law to protect the dignity of women. If a woman was divorced in that society, people would assume she committed adultery. So to protect her, what God is saying is, I've got to regulate this because men are abusing their power in their situations. And so God commands, you must give her her certificate stating why you've divorced her if you're going to do something like that to her, guys. So now she's free to go around and she says, she meets another man, maybe she wants to get married. Well, why did your husband divorce you? Are you one of those unfaithful women that I can't trust? No, no, look here. I burned his dinner once, and he's such an idiot that he divorced me just because I burned his meal. And then the other guy can say, oh, okay. <laughs> now we can proceed. So this law gives her legal rights. It gives her self-respect and the freedom to remarry. It also protects women from capricious husbands who are going to divorce their wives for just about any old reason because now it's going to be public why you did it. So don't be an idiot and divorce your wife over some ridiculous thing like burning the dinner. Second reason why God gave this law, and this is the important one, God gave this law to regulate a chaotic situation, not to endorse divorce. To regulate a chaotic situation, that's why. Remember, the, the, the progressive liberals following Rabbi Hillel thought you can just get divorced for any reason whatsoever, and Moses commanded it, so we're allowed to do it. That's the way that they're thinking. But this law simply provides some procedures if a divorce takes place, and therefore the most reluctant permission is implied and tolerated. But listen, this is very important. God is not commanding divorce. He is regulating it. Not commanding it, 
regulating it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 19. In verse 7, the Pharisees said Moses commanded them to do this, and Jesus is saying, no, no, what you call a command, God actually says is a concession, and that's very clear if you just look back in Moses as he says this in verse 8. He said to them, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, not because he commanded you, that's why Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. It's because your hearts are hard. That's the problem. We got chaos everywhere. Then Jesus adds, but from the beginning, it was not so. So you see, he's raising the bar again. He's speaking with a prophetic voice to them. You guys, have you abandoned what originally God created in the beginning? So once again, Jesus is saying, why are you talking about the grounds of divorce? You should be talking about the oneness of the couple and how can we protect that? How can we protect a woman from a husband who would do something dumb like divorce his wife over burning the dinner? That's what you should be discussing and talking about. You should be talking about how divorce severs what God has joined together. And this is why people often refer, in our culture, maybe you've heard this before, that divorce is so painful, sometimes they talk about it as if you're like, like losing a part of yourself, losing a limb, it's like an amputation. Yet in our culture, we wanna talk about divorce as if it's like removing an old hat, taking a new hat, and putting on a new hat. But we all know from personal experience and from those around us, that divorce is not like that. It causes so much pain, so many questions, so much confusion. It's not like removing a hat. It's like removing a limb. And what God is doing here in this passage is he's trying to regulate something so it doesn't get worse. He's trying to protect society and especially protect innocent parties and we think especially of children. So Jesus' second point is that we must take the permanence of marriage seriously because even the grounds for divorce are a concession, not a command. Here's the third part of teaching, and then we're going to spend a bunch of time applying it. Third point Jesus makes is this. We must also take the permanence of marriage seriously because aside from the biblical exceptions, we're going to talk about these, remarriage after divorce results in adultery. Remarriage after divorce results in adultery. So come back to Matthew 5 now. In Matthew 5, Jesus says these words. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So to paraphrase, Jesus is saying, okay, you guys, you've heard the teaching of the Pharisees on Deuteronomy 24. And they use it to push their own agenda to permit more and more divorce under just about any circumstances. But I say to you, Jesus says, unless that divorce is on the grounds of sexual immorality, such irresponsible behavior is going to lead people, when they have to go get remarried, going to lead them into committing adultery when they first consummate their new marriage. Now let's be careful here. Notice that Jesus does not say that the second marriage is not a marriage. The second marriage, he says, is a true marriage. Notice also, very careful, he does not say that the second marriage, that they live in a perpetual state of adultery. He says it's a one-time act. That's the verb, it's a one-time sense. You force them to commit adultery, but the whole marriage is not to be viewed as endless sin against God. No, it's a true marriage, the second marriage, but because of the first disillusion of the marriage, you're causing more sin to take place. But Jesus also says there is a time 
when these difficult decisions sometimes have to be made, when divorce is acceptable, and when remarriage is morally acceptable, though not good, not nice, not enjoyable. What is that grounds? It's where he says here, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, Jesus says this ground of uh, sexual morality, this word is a pretty broad word in the Bible. It refers to all kinds of sexual acts. It could refer to anything from adultery, fornication, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, or any other form of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. And what Jesus is saying here is that when someone is married and does that, what it does is it breaks the covenant. It breaks the vow. And so when it does that, you've broken what God has joined together. And Jesus says that in that case, divorce is morally acceptable to take place and then the person can remarry. But it needs to be pointed out that just because it's permissible doesn't mean it has to happen. And I've just heard amazing stories. There's so many good stories of this where there's been an affair in a marriage and it causes so much pain and difficulty. But the couple decides together to rebuild trust and to work it out. There are some marvelous stories of redemption. So what Jesus is saying is, yes, divorce is permissible, but it's not commanded. Maybe you want to try and work it out, but if you feel like this cannot be done, divorce and therefore remarriage is permissible in that situation. The Apostle Paul goes on and gives another exception, another reason why divorce would be permissible, and that is when a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever doesn't want to be part of the marriage anymore and deserts the believer. And in that case, Paul says, that's what also sadly has to happen and the person can then move more forward towards remarriage. So those are the two very clear biblical grounds for divorce. There's all kinds of other questions that come up. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of them, but particular situations and what about this and that. Honestly, so many of those got to be worked out with a, a counselor, a pastor, and to work them out uh, in the situation that a person was in. So that's a lot of teaching, but I hope that makes some things clear. The truth gets clear through there. I think we need to hear some more words, though. So what I want to do now is I want to bring this together and I want to speak three words of grace, two words of challenge, and then end with a story. My first word of grace, I want to speak to those of you who have been divorced because your spouse was sexually immoral. So you were married, but now you're divorced because your, your spouse was sexually immoral. What you need to hear is that according to Jesus, you are not guilty of the sin of divorce. You should not carry guilt and shame over that. Maybe there's things you did in your marriage. There were sins that took place. By all means, confess those. Come seek the grace of God for those. But the divorce itself, there is not a sin there. That's what Jesus is saying. There are grounds where it is permissible to divorce, but you need to hear the grace of God to you that you were sinned against and your partner broke the covenant, broke the vow, and you are free to remarry, you are free to receive the grace of God and to move on in your life. That's the first word of grace to those of you in that situation. My second word of grace is to those who have been divorced, but it was not on biblical grounds, and you've not yet remarried. So you were married, maybe it's just difference of a pit, whatever happened there, it fell apart, but you're not yet remarried. Here's a word of grace, what should you do? First, you need to come to the cross. You need to come to Jesus and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. I contributed to the breakdown of this marriage. And you need to receive the grace that is available through Christ. And listen, oh, this is such good news for you. Listen, 
Divorce is not an unpardonable sin. Yes, it's tragic. Yes, I know the pain and it's so raw for you and maybe you carry guilt, maybe you carry shame. But Jesus Christ died for sinners. Jesus died for our sins. He is a savior, meaning he is one who saves. He is one who rescues. And he comes, his favorite people to rescue are who? The people who don't think they need rescuing? No, he loves to rescue people who know they need to be rescued. So if you're in that situation and you see your sin, come to him and he is the savior who has open arms and receives anyone who comes to him seeking grace. Now, if you and your former spouse are not remarried yet, where this usually goes now, and again, great Christian examples of this, to begin to pray, is there any way, Lord, I don't think there is, but is there any way that there could be some sort of reconciliation? Maybe it's not a remarriage to your original spouse. Is there a way to make peace? But is there even, maybe there's an idea there that even a potential remarriage, and you've probably heard the stories of this too, where people have divorced, their marriage has fallen apart, and then over time, God has spoken into their lives. They've come back. It's been a long, it's a long journey. It's a lot of work. But then they have a remarriage, and they come back together again. Is that possible? Those are the questions that need to be pondered there. But again, let me speak some more words of grace to those of you who are in this situation. Here at Central, we have a wonderful ministry. It happens a lot more behind the scenes because of the nature of it. It's called Divorce Care. And Divorce Care is for people who obviously have been divorced. And of course, when people get divorced, the separation, it causes all kinds of questions. It causes all kinds of pain, a lot of stress. It's a very confusing time. And of course, people can feel lonely and isolated. And so what this ministry does is you come for, I think it's 13 weeks. You meet in a small group. There's trained facilitators. You work through materials. And you work through all the questions and all the difficulties that come when you get divorced. Now, we just are finishing one, so we're not going to start another one probably until February, but if that interests you, call the church office. As we see interest level, we will also have another one of these divorce care groups meet in the new year. But such an important thing for us to do as a church is to care for those who've been through these difficult situations. My third word of grace, this, to those who have been divorced, but it was not on biblical grounds, and you've been remarried. So things fell apart. You didn't, you, got, you didn't get divorced because of an affair or because an unbelieving spouse deserted or something like that. You, you all contributed to it. It fell apart. You've gone your separate ways, and now you're remarried. You also need to hear a word of grace, the same word of grace I spoke to the earlier ones. You need to come to the cross and say, Jesus, all right, forgive me for the mess that I've made in the past. But here's another thing I know as a pastor, oftentimes... That old life can haunt the new marriage. You can think, maybe am I wrong to be in this new marriage now? Uh, maybe, uh, should I even get divorced from the new marriage if I, if I really want to follow God? But listen, this is what you've got to hear from Jesus. Your second marriage or the new marriage you're in, maybe it's a third one, I don't know. It is a marriage. It is a true marriage before God. You should not leave that marriage. Your role now is to receive Christ's forgiveness and God's grace for any past sins you've committed but then to give yourself wholeheartedly to the new marriage to make sure this one works. But again, I know, having talked with people, you can be sitting there and you say, man, our our marriage did not begin on good grounds. So maybe this is you. Maybe you're married to this person because you had an affair on your first spouse 
and now you're married to the person that you had the affair with. So now Christ is beginning to work in your heart, and here's what begins to happen. Maybe What I'm saying is your marriage, let's say your marriage began with all kinds of chaos, and so many marriages do. They did not begin the way that things are supposed to, but now you find yourself in this marriage. It did not begin well, but all the weight of all of this stuff is just there, and you feel guilty about it. You feel shame about it. This is the word of grace also that you need to hear today, that God is the great redeemer. That God is the one who loves to redeem that which was lost. That he loves to heal that which is broken. That he loves to make beauty out of ashes. This is the kind of God that rules the universe. This is the kind of Savior that we serve. Think of one of the best examples of this. Think of King David. Did anyone's marriage ever begin under a more of a cloud of sin and utter destruction than King David? Do you know how King David's marriage began? First of all, he spied on another man's wife while she was bathing. That led him to use and abuse his kingly power to get that woman to come to his house. They sleep together. That woman is married. Bathsheba is married. Then he gets, finds out that she's pregnant, so he has her husband killed, and then he marries her. That is a bad beginning to a marriage. Not good at all. David is confronted with his sin. David needs to repent, and he does. Read Psalm 51 as an example. If you need a psalm to work through in your heart for your past sins, go with David. Follow another person who made a great mess of things. Follow him in Psalm 51, but then God began to redeem him. David is, of course, a man after God's own heart. David and Bathsheba's son, his name is Solomon. Through the line of David to Solomon, who eventually gets born? We're about to celebrate it in the month of December. God's Messiah, Jesus, comes through David's line, through the baby that was born through an affair. This is the kind of God that we serve who takes all the broken pieces and he makes something beautiful out of it. And friends, I could tell you so many stories. I can't because they're too personal. They're too people's stories and you can't find out some of the details. The problem with being a pastor, you know some great stories, but those people need to tell them. But I'm telling you, there's some amazing, amazing stories of people whose marriage is utterly falling apart. It's in shambles, it's destroyed, or it began on a terrible note. And yet God comes into that marriage and begins to heal. He begins to put together all the things that are broken. And my prayer is that God would do that for you as well if you're in this situation. That's the three words of grace. Two words of challenge. First, the church must receive divorced people with grace and truth. Too often I hear people saying, well, they got divorced and and now they're like banned from the church or Christians didn't, you know, all kinds of bad stories on that level. That cannot happen. Yes, we need to talk to people. I'm telling you, I've had to confront, think of one instance, this one's far away so you don't know this at all, getting a husband to finally come to my office because he's been cheating on his wife for a while, he's left her, all this kind of stuff, and I'm pleading with him, please turn away from this and come to your wife. He just says, if this is what this meeting's about, I want no part of it. And he walked out, and I've never seen him since. There's stories like that, but what about his wife? What about his wife? She's still part of the church. So we've got to deal with him, but now how do we treat her? She better be received with compassion and with grace and not with, well, what did you do to make your husband do that? She didn't do anything. She's not to be blamed for what her husband did. 
We as a church need, we need to be like Christ who has his arms open to the sinners, to anyone who's broken, saying, come to me and I will give you rest. So let's make sure Central is a place where if you find out people are divorced, you come along, you listen to their story, and you speak grace into their life, you help guide them into what is the truth, how can they learn what it means to follow Christ, but let us be a church that's marked by the way of Jesus, not a way of judgment. Let's make sure that we reflect our Savior and how we deal with people. Challenge number two, no matter the state of your marriage, pursue greater faithfulness with your spouse. So obviously speaking to married couples, if your marriage is in trouble, don't give up. Again, it's so many wonderful stories I can think of where divorce papers are actually signed, they're about to go into the mail, and last second, they're pulled away. The marriage gets worked on over time, and the marriage is restored. There's so many stories like that. If you're in a bad place with your marriage, get the help that you need. Seek out the people who can help you. Do the hard work and pour yourself into that. God is the great reconciler, and the story of the Bible is how God reconciles himself at great cost. Do that with your spouse, and even if your marriage is great today, keep working at it. Never, ever stop working at it. Serve your spouse, love your spouse, and make sure you have a healthy and joy-filled marriage. Finally, one story. It's a true story of a man named Kim, man, and a, a woman named Cricket. I know, odd names. True story, though. Kim and Cricket. Uh, their story has actually been made into a movie that you can watch if you want a kind of romantic movie, couples. You want to watch something inspiring. It's called The Vow. It's a couple years old now. It's a true story, though, and the true story is even better than the movie. So here's the story. Two months after their wedding, Kim and Cricket are driving to their parents' house, and they get in a brutal car accident. And Ki uh, uh, Cricket, the wife, hits her head so hard uh, that they give her a half a percent of the chance of survival. She does survive, but she has serious brain damage. And when she wakes up in the hospital and they ask her who her husband is, she replies, I'm not married. She'd completely forgotten about who he is. Can you imagine waking up in the hospital, being you to be in the one in the hospital, and someone tells you you're married, but you don't know you're married, or you're married and suddenly your spouse has no idea who you are. And so they tried to work at this. Kim, the husband, he worked hard to get her to remember him. He put pictures out of things they'd done, ran her through old photo albums, talked about old memories. They're hoping over time that this would eventually come back together. But it did not. It kept going that way. And Kim had to realize that basically the woman that he had married died in that car accident. And this was, in many ways, a different woman. Well, a, a therapist finally suggested to them that they try to start dating. <laughs> that they try to fall in love all over again. And to make a long story short, they did, and they actually had a second wedding. But here's the kicker. After two kids, four dogs, and 18 years of marriage, Cricket has never recovered her memory. Never. And they credit their faith in Jesus Christ with getting them through. And here's what they said in an interview. Kim said this, quote, We live in a society where vows are constantly broken. Forty years ago, till death do us part meant the death of a soulmate. Today it is the death of a marriage that society has accepted. And so people would say to Kim, 
You're such a hero for staying with your wife through such a hard circumstance. Many people would say, I just can't handle this. Uh, we need to go our separate ways. I'm sorry this happened, but we've got to go our separate ways. You're such a hero, Kim. And here's what Kim said to that. Quote, it was a choice based on obedience to God, not the feelings I had. He said, I'm no hero. I made a vow. I want to lead us into a time of response now. And we're going to sing a song. I'll invite the music team to come up. We're going to sing that song, Lord, I Need You. I think it's an appropriate way to end because we all live in a fallen world. Things are broken everywhere. We can all sing this out of our own experience, whatever our experience may be. Lord, I need you. Let's make that our heart cry. Lord, I need you to remain faithful in my marriage. I need you to restore what has been broken. I need you to help my children who are being affected by divorce or grandchildren, whatever it may be. Let's sing that song as a prayer, and particularly when it comes to our own sins. As the chorus sings, Jesus, you're my one defense. You're the only one who can defend me before the judgment seat of God for the sins I've committed. Jesus, you're my righteousness. I'm clothed in your righteousness, Jesus. That's my only hope. I don't have any by myself. So you're my righteousness. Lord, I need you. Let's pray and let's sing together. Father, I pray now that you would minister more to our hearts by your Spirit that your spirit would apply these words this morning in ways I could never have done. You would apply them to each, and each, each individual situation, each individual person, and you would speak your good news to each one. Would you come and do that in each particular situation, I ask? And Lord, together, collectively, we all say we need you. We need you to be faithful. We need you to forgive our sins. We need you so when we stand before the judgment seat of God, God, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that we are not condemned at all, but we are loved. We are taken as your children, accepted into your heavenly kingdom. Lord, we need you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.